So us, we're back with another security rabbit hole for us this week. It's about time. The other day, I'm kind of scrolling through Twitter, and I have to admit, I kind of do do some clickbait items at times. But as I'm clicking around, just kind of reading things, I see this article that says the five cybersecurity mistakes you're probably guilty of and how to fix them. And I'm thinking, hmm, you know, is this clickbait? Is this going to be real information? So I take a look, and it turns out the person who made this video is my friend Duncan. So I clicked on the video. I have to admit, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit going like, oh, I'm sure I'm not making any of these. And it turns out I'm making most of them. I think it was four out of five that I was guilty of. (laughs) Ouch. So I thought, all right, why don't I ask my friend Duncan to join us and kind of start educating me on why these are mistakes. So Duncan, thanks so much for agreeing to come on today. I don't know if I should be on being a clickbaiter, but thank you for having me. You know what? I'm going to call, what is it, a fish a fish? I'm going to go with that. That's the safe one. (laughs) (laughs) So now I'm a fisher. Hey, you know, we all have to compete for likes out there. So we have a little bit of a tradition on this show because personally, I don't like to speak for other people. So I was wondering if you would mind kind of introducing yourself to everybody and tell us a little bit about what you do. Absolutely. So I'm Duncan Macklin. I am InfoSecWar on Twitter. I am also the president CEO of Operandus. We're uh, basically a cybersecurity company specializing in creating technical marketing content for our partners. So you won't hear of us because we don't want to be out there and be seen. We're actually working with some of the leading cybersecurity companies that many of you are probably already working with and just helping them bring their products to market and connect with their audience. I bring with me about 25 years of industry experience called consulting with Fortune 500, Global 2000s, state, federal, local agencies around enterprise management and cybersecurity. And uh, just really love being a part of the community. And part of that has been launching uh, last year, the Cyber Speaks Live podcast as well. And being able to get some great guest co-host on there to be able to join me and talking about things that matter to our community and help giving InfoSec professionals around the world a voice that matters and letting them be heard. So that's pretty much me in a nutshell. I'm a Texan mislocated here in Ocala, Florida for the time being, just trying to stay warm and stay dry. I'm actually going to kind of stop you there in your introduction because there's one thing you said and it's you know giving infosec professionals you know voice and a chance to be heard but i think you do more than that and i think that's one of the reasons that i actually kind of befriended you um and that's you reach out for those who are just starting their journey and you take time to educate people instead of just you know just kind of presenting what's known to people who already know it if that makes sense I didn't have the typical journey into InfoSec that a lot of folks may have. I didn't go to a proper university. I didn't graduate with a degree. I dropped out of high school. I'm a GED candidate. I got married at 19 years old, had my first kid at 20, went into law enforcement at 21, got tired of burying really good officers and bailed out after three years, you know. So. 
I ended up falling into my career accidentally, and I've been very blessed ever since. And you're right, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for the next generation coming up, especially those underprivileged and underrepresented groups, because I was that person growing up in the projects. I had a tough life, and I didn't make a lot of good choices, and it cost me severely. So if I can help encourage the next gen coming up behind us and provide some tools and resources for them to be able to benefit it's my way of giving back to that young person that got the chance to succeed in this career early. Well, we're going to give you a chance to do a little educating here. And in the process, I think I'm going to put Wes on the spot here. So Wes, you ready to take this challenge? The five cybersecurity mistakes that you're probably guilty of. Oh gosh, this is going to be embarrassing. So number one, not using a VPN on your home network. Just because you're on your home network doesn't mean you're always safe. So Wes, do you use a VPN at all times? Oh, okay. Not at all times. I do have one set up, but it's not on by default. Let's be honest here. Is this not like a little tinfoil hat? Like I'm being paranoid. Do I honestly have to use my VPN even when I'm at home? You know, you have to give consideration to whether or not you know your device is pwned. So just think about that for half a second. Do you have full confidence in the system that's sitting in front of you that it hasn't been compromised, that the router hasn't been compromised, that your ISP has not been compromised? Uh, if you're connecting over your mobile device, do you have full confidence in that cellular network? Uh, you know, so there's all kinds of different threat scenarios that even the home user needs to take into account. And to ensure that the traffic that they're sending to their bank, to their healthcare providers, you know, that very personal information and confidential information, are you comfortable and are you confident when you're making those connections. And if you cannot say with 100% assurity that you are, then maybe you need to be connecting to your VPN provider even over your home network. And if you're using a reputable one, there should be no degradation of service or quality just because you've connected to that VPN, especially if they have the right number of servers and the right representation of servers in the countries that you're wanting to pretend that you're connecting from. And I suppose giving that a try will be a good way to figure out if you should stay with your current provider if they're up to the task. Absolutely. And trust me, every VPN provider out there that is charging and you should be using a paid-for VPN service, they're going to provide you free trials and all the access and discounts that you'd be hoping for. They want your business. Now, Wes, I know in recent TechSnap episodes, you've talked about certain VPN providers, so you might have an opinion on this as well, but how do I go about picking a reputable VPN provider? Like, I'm constantly seeing ads, but how do I know which ones are legitimate companies? The first and foremost is you should not be selecting a free VPN provider. They're making their money somehow, some way, and typically that is off of your data usage. They are looking at everything that you do, and they're going to be harvesting that information and offering it up to bid to the highest 
you know, uh, bitter. The other thing is, uh, I actually wrote an article recently on expert tips for choosing a VPN solution. So in that, I talk about all the things that you should be looking at in consideration when you're trying to choose a VPN product for business or home use. Okay, Wes. So question number two. Are you using your guest Wi-Fi network for your smart devices? No, I'm not, even though I saw recently the FBI was recommending doing that. And Duncan, you say that you can protect your computers from botnet-type attacks by segmenting your smart home devices on your Wi-Fi router's guest network. Can you tell us a little bit more about setting this up and really what you're preventing by doing this? Yeah, so absolutely. All these smart home and IoT or Internet of Thing devices are connected typically to your normal home network. But these home routers today are also becoming much smarter. They typically are going to have a guest network that is segmented. It is virtualized, if you will, in a completely different isolated environment than your home computers and the things that you are working from to connect to your bank and your healthcare providers and stuff like we talked about earlier. So by taking all your refrigerators and appliances, your home assistant, your Amazon Echoes and all this, and putting those onto that guest network, you're basically isolating them from being able to potentially infect your actual home computers. That way, if there is some type of crisis botnet where these devices have been compromised and enlisted into these botnet armies, you're not going to have to worry about the crossover or bleed into your PCs that contain your personal data and trying to protect that. So it's a good way to segment your life, so to speak. Keep all those smart devices in in their own little cesspool and keep your home PCs, your tablets, your uh, mobile devices on the proper home network. That's actually something that I've struggled with and something that I've tried to do. You know, my network is segmented to the point where I've got the kids on their own. I've got mine. I've got IoT. However, some of the devices like my Google Home, I can't communicate with them if my phone isn't on the same network as them. Or I can't send calls out to my thermostat without going out of my network if I'm not on the same network. And I have to admit, I've gotten a little lazy about keeping them separated because of that. I can see that, too. And once you get the initial setup of the majority of these device types finished, then it's pretty much a set it and forget it. Now, in the scenario where you have to integrate some of your devices or tablets or what have you with the home assistants, that may be the exception where you say, okay, I'm going to let this one Alexa device onto our home network. And that's where I'm going to add our grocery items and the convenience things. But, you know, you're streaming for the TV, the, you know, the other types of things. Still try to keep that segmented as much as possible. 
Right. It doesn't have to be an all or nothing sort of approach. Just segmenting some of those is already going to keep you safer, even if you can't do all of them. Exactly. Well, Al, I think you might be guilty of our next item, because that's providing too much info about yourself online. I mean, we've all seen your Twitter. Ah, I know. This is the one that I cringed when I read it, because I was like, that's me. And to be fair, I started on Twitter long before I started my InfoSec journey. And I guess I've always thought, well, if it's out there and everyone knows, then everybody knows it, so it can't really be used against me. Uh, I think the more that I learn, the more I realize I'm very, very wrong. When it comes to our personal information and how much we're revealing about ourselves online, this this isn't just for protecting your personal identity and preventing some of the more creepier kinds of things that we know the horror stories about out there. But also, uh, I, I'm also talking about revealing too much about yourself in as how it may impact your professional life, right? So when you're putting particular content out there, for example, and I'm going to play a scenario some of you may not be thinking about, but let's think about a job change or a promotion or a new project that you've been assigned to. Do you really need to be putting that information out on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook? How much information are you talking about in that new project or that new company that may actually compromise their data security? Are you talking about a new product that you're the PM on, that you're deploying, that just happens to have a known vulnerability? You know, there's all types of ways that open source intelligence can be used against you that could end up tying back to your employer as well. Uh, A great scenario that I'm reminded of often is how one person had so much information about herself online that she became the target of a business email compromise scheme in which they had used some information about her high school years where she played on the UK high school rugby team. They were able to portray themselves doing a little bit of research as her high school rugby coach sent her an email with attachment, a zip file saying something to the effect of it being photos of the team back in the day, right? Of course you're going to open that. You know, it looks to be coming from your old high school coach. It's talking about the old team. It seems legitimate, right, until it's... Oh, fun. Sure, of course I want to see that. Who wouldn't? But therein lies the problem. Open up the attachment. You know, one thing leads to another, and that system's compromised, and they ended up using that to gain a foothold and siphoning out uh, tons of money from that particular organization. And it all came about from our LinkedIn profile. You know, I think that this is one that, that hit a little close to home because, you know, Wes, you were here when this happened, and Duncan, you heard about it after the fact, but at a 
conference I was at recently. I'd brought my kids with me and somebody basically approached them. It was like, oh yeah, I'm your mom's friend. I was at this conference with her and I remember when she was here and they were trying to use other people around them to kind of justify who they were to my kids and get information from them. You know, luckily I'd had this conversation with the kids and prepared them But when all of this came back to me, my first instinct was, you know, delete Twitter, burn the world like this has gone too far. But I don't have anyone to blame but myself because I put all of that information out there to be used. Exactly. And we do so so innocently and not thinking of all the threat scenarios that could exist as a result. And you could go back to the tinfoil hats, you know, accusation that you made earlier, but in reality, this is a world we live in today, folks, and we have to exercise caution with how much information we're sharing when it comes to these social networks. So your next tip is about using primary contact information online, and it's one that I've had to struggle with myself. You know, I use messaging apps like Signal, but whenever I have to say, hey, hit me up on Signal, I have to give out my personal phone number. And I've done other things like, oh, I'd love to mentor you. Here's my email address. And I realize that this is available for everyone now. Like, how do you secure yourself while still being available? Yeah, you know, that's a great question because there's all sorts of different reasons why we may need to expose a phone number or an email address online. You know, maybe you're trying to sell something or, you know, maybe you're on a dating website, whatever. You know, you want to exchange information. There's all different kinds of use case scenarios, but what it boils down to is you need burners. Uh, Don't be giving out your actual email address. Don't give out your real phone number. This is 2020. We have alternatives today, folks. Uh, There's burner phones, which you can pick up in any Walmart or Target location. Get a burner device if you need to. So there's also apps that you can install that go on your existing device and basically just act like a soft phone. Uh, One of them's MySudo app. And basically, it lets you just treat your device as a second phone number or a third or a fifth because you can have multiple numbers and you can provide those out for different reasons. Maybe you use one for job prospecting. Maybe you use another one for date prospecting. Uh, maybe you have a third that you just use when you're filling out forms online. But you could also generate additional email addresses. And these apps have fees involved, but it's a lot easier to spend two or three, four bucks a month on an app like this that protects your identity versus the risk of having to use your real information online and how that can snowball on you. Well, as you were talking, Duncan, I'm sitting here looking at my pseudo app, and man, I really want to use this. However, I'm on an Android device, and it seems to only be supported by Apple right now. Do you have any recommendations on the Android side? Yeah. Now, I'll be honest, I'm not a big fan of Android devices, and that's a topic for a whole nother show. But uh, I have heard good things about Phoner. It's basically phone with an R at the end. 
And I think it's phonerapp.com that has a comparable for the Android devices out there. Excellent. That seems like something worth giving a try, at least. I've definitely used burner email addresses in the past, but hadn't gone as far as a phone number. It seemed a little complicated, but if I could just have an app on my phone, I can handle that. Yeah, and I think most of us are familiar with how to generate a second email address, and that's great. But doing it with a app like this that's designed for this purpose makes it so much easier, so much quicker. And as quickly as you can generate that email address or that phone number, you can also burn it and create a new one. So if you select a plan that maybe says you can only have three email addresses and three phone numbers, that's fine. But you can also burn those as quickly as you fire them up as well. I think that's an important thing to note because I went as far as to create a secondary email account. However, I kept using that same email account for all of my burner options. And at that point, it just became an email account that was tied to me. Your last piece of advice is one that hits home for me. And unfortunately, it's a lesson I had to learn early. And that's you got to have backups and you need those backups in more than one place. Absolutely. I cannot stress this enough Uh, not only for individuals, but still even for businesses and major businesses at that, government agencies. I don't know why we still have the issues that we do today with ransomware and taking down entire state governments or shutting down businesses. It doesn't make sense to me. The simple resolve for ransomware is have solid backups. But it goes beyond just ransomware. It goes to, you know, you drop your device. Uh, There's a fire in the home. Anything that can create an incident, you're going to want to have good backups. And you're going to want to have multiple copies of those backups. And they should be stored in different formats and in different locations. So there's this concept called the 3-2-1 rule. You want to have three copies of your data in two different formats and at least one of those stored off-site. That may be a different physical location, should be in a different geographical location at that, or stored in the cloud. The reason I say different physical locations and geo at that is because if there's some type of physical disaster, my wife and I had to go through the hurricanes a couple years ago with you know Houston, Uh, you know, you don't want to have some natural disaster come through, cause flooding or cause fire damage, that kind of stuff that ends up ruining your data in the process because now you have no way of recovering even that part of your life. It amazes me how many stories I've heard about ransoms that the backups were encrypted as well. So they were keeping backups, but a whole lot of good that it did them at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that I I say tongue-in-cheek, you know, when I'm presenting at conferences and talking to enterprise customers, but I'm actually being kind of serious. If you're not going to bother testing your backups, just don't even take them. You might as well flip a damn coin. Wow. Well, I can definitely not argue with that point. But before I let you go, I kind of wanted to add 
a little bit more to this because as we were setting up today, you mentioned a browser that I'm not familiar with that I'm interested in, and that's Brave? Yeah, yeah. So Brave is actually, it's becoming the browser of preference by a lot of InfoSec professionals around the world. And the purpose behind that, it is designed for data privacy and protection, first and foremost. So it has built-in mechanisms to help stop some of the malicious tracking and spying on how you're browsing the web. And this isn't meant to mean, you know, the creepy kind of stuff. This is just how you are as a person, the things that you're doing, you have no idea how surveyed we are with everything that we're doing online. And with that, I'd like to encourage every single listener out there to watch The Creepy Line. It's a free documentary with Amazon Prime, or I think you can also find it on Apple iTunes. But it talks about all the creepy stuff that goes on and how we are being tracked and manipulated by Facebook and Google, a little bit on Amazon as well. But Brave is meant to help protect us from a lot of those activities by blocking those types of tracking, adware, all this kind of stuff. So I highly recommend everybody check it out. You can just go to uh, your search engine, type in Brave Browser, and you'll be able to pull it down and uh, install it. I think that is a great tip, and I, I've watched the movie and definitely would recommend it, but I think I'm going to take a spin on Brave and see how it goes, so maybe we'll have to have you back on and I can detail how that experience went. Yeah, I'd love to see what you think of it. I've been using it for the past year and have no qualms with it whatsoever. Well, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I've definitely got some homework to do on my home network but don't worry, we'll have links to everything we've talked about if you'd like to dive in more over at extras.show.